of anticipation here at Hillcrest Church. It's our Advent series. Advent, we learned from Pastor Chris last week, means arrival. Arrival. Uh, you, you may be looking forward to different things in your life, and the word Advent, you could use it in many different ways. You could say, I'm waiting for the arrival or the advent of what? A grandchild who's yet to be born. Or I could, I'm waiting for the arrival of um, a friend who's coming to visit me for Christmas. Or maybe nothing so wonderful as that, but you're just waiting for the advent of Disney Plus, in, you know, something like that. Whatever you've been waiting for, the word Advent means arrival. And we've been, when used in the Christian calendar, as we learned last week, uh, Pastor Chris, by the way, if you don't understand the Christian calendar, like I didn't, last week I learned lots about the Christian calendar, and Pastor Chris did an amazing job of helping us understand that we're tracking the life of Jesus through the winter, that's what Christians do, and then, and then through the whole year, reflecting who he is in our lives. And um, so last week we talked about how Jesus' coming was the embodiment of hope, Jesus' coming was, he was the embodiment of hope and bringing hope into our lives. And uh, each week there's a candle that signifies a different thing that Jesus has brought into our lives. And today I get to talk about uh, Jesus' coming as the embodiment of love. And uh, so it's pretty exciting as we're, as we're living in this space of um, anticipation. Uh, it's sort of like we're, we're reliving what the Israelites would have lived, saying, oh, Lord, Come, send the Messiah, send someone to save us. And God's answer came in the form of Jesus arriving as a baby. So, I, I've got the task of talking about love today, but I'm going to just cheat and uh, use a video at the first few minutes, for four minutes, to just really talk about what the Bible says about love, some of the biblical words for love. And after I, we watch that video, I'll come back, and then I will, uh, I'll do some teaching too. So... Let's, let's roll with that So video. if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. 
And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. All right, so now we know lots about love, Greek words, Hebrew words, and, uh, and how the early Christians defined love based on the life of Jesus and the, and the teachings of Jesus. So I want to talk about that last, there was a last, second last phrase in there. He said, the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then give it back out to others. And I want to just zoom in on that phrase, receive this love, because that's where it begins. That's where it begins. If you want to get that whole circle, that ecosystem of love uh, going, it, it begins with receiving that love. So uh, today, that's mainly what I want to talk about, how to receive this love. But before we go there, before we talk about how to re receive this love, I want to ask you, how easy is it for you to experience love in your life? How easy is it for you to experience love in your life? Uh, we have a two-year-old girl in our, in our world, in our family, and she has this figured out. She's got this aced. When she comes into the house, she likes to let us know she is there. And how does she do that? One word. She says, home. 
home, which you probably heard me say, I'm home, or others say, I'm home. Home, and you know what? That gets a great response out of us because she's so cute. We want to give her attention, and so we say, oh, where did you go today? Did you go in mommy's van? Oh, we're so glad you came home. It works for her. And you know what? Here's another, this, the other one where we see it even more is at bedtime. Now, Marnie often puts her to bed. You know, there's, there's lots of steps involved. But one of the, the steps that is sort of the, the biggest one is just before she's finally tucked in is that uh, she likes to get hugs from her three older brothers and her dad. And so uh, Marnie will often say to me, say, oh, tell the boys it's huggy time. So I'll say, hey, guys, pause what you're doing. It's huggy time. And then one by one, everybody will traipse up the stairs, give her a hug. And uh, she's, she, you know, it's wonderful. And she's so used to it that last week she did something new. Instead of me going out and saying, hey, guys, huggy time, you know, you know pause that thing, stop that, and, you know, do what you're supposed to do here, you know, go hug your sister. Uh, she actually came to the top of the stairs by herself and declared, huggies. Now talk about confidence, and you just can't not respond. So we all came up and gave her a hug. Let me ask you, is this how it works in your world? When you show up at work tomorrow? I'm here. What about in school, your classmates? I've arrived, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Where's the attention? Where's the love, right? Can you just, can you just, uh, I mean, can you do what Jade does? Can you do what a two-year-old does? I don't know if it works the same for us as adults or, or as teenagers. Can we simply verbalize a request for affection and everyone stops what they're doing and gets in a line waiting for their chance to affirm us and to hug us and to care for us? Wow, I bet before today you never, ever envied a two-year-old. They got it made. See, we all want, we all generally want positive connection and relationship in our lives, and we want love. In fact, I believe we're hardwired for this in our creation, the way that God has made us. But there's some times where we feel this need uh, more strongly than other times. And I was reading the story about Mary and Joseph and, and in the Bible, and I was, the, I was reading it with an article, and the article was, now, someone's saying, isn't this a wonderful love story? Here's a, a boy meets girl, and, uh, you know, he's a carpenter, and she's a, she's a young, she's probably in her teenage years, which would have been normal in that society to marriage at that time. And, and mom and dad would have been involved for sure, and there would have been, uh, you know, approval from them, and there would have been community blessing, and everybody would have known, and there were steps in the process, and, and you'd be betrothed, and then eventually uh, things would be consummated. And, you know, there's all these steps and, uh, but just wonderful, just wonderful, wonderful. And then, but then there's that day, the scripture tells what, where Mary has to tell Joseph, I'm pregnant. Now she says other stuff about angels and prophecy, but all Joseph probably hears is that you're pregnant and I was not involved. Now talk about a love story coming crashing down. Talk about uh, being thrown into turmoil. Uh, I'm not sure exactly the timeline. I tried to figure that out, but I'm not sure. But there's this, there's this story in the story of how Mary goes away to visit her, her relative Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant and older, much older, and uh, it's sort of a miracle birth 
on that end too. The miracle pregnancy on that end too. But she, she goes away. I wonder if she was actually sent away because of the embarrassment. I'm not sure if that's true or not. I, don't, I haven't really dug deep enough to really know that, and I'm not sure if we can know that. But then imagine that she's off with the, going on a, you know, walking to Elizabeth's town where she lives or riding a donkey or however she got there, and Joseph's back home in Nazareth, and they're like feeling the need, feeling very lost, feeling very troubled, feeling the need for love in their own lives. Now, it's an interesting thing. Both stories uh, are very interesting. What, what does God do for Mary? Now, I, I want you to think, Mary, when she tells her folks, I'm pregnant, how, what kind of response she got, right? Was there tears? Did her mom cry? Did her dad yell? Was there someone who, you know, at least insinuated that she brought shame on their household? When she gets to Elizabeth, this is the response she gets. Elizabeth bursts into enthusiasm. And now she's, she's, she's being uh, compelled from within because inside of her is what will be John, cousin John. And the baby jumps, six months I think it was pregnant, the baby jumps within her at joy for the coming of Mary and pregnant Mary with Jesus. And this is what she says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, that's a huge upgrade from why have you brought shame to us? Why am I so favored? You know what this feels like? Love. For Mary, I believe this feels like love. People are so hungry to be blessed. People are so hungry to have positive words spoken to them. People are so hungry to be anticipated. For Mary, she's not having my two-year-old's experience of coming home to her mom and dad. Home isn't a great celebration, but when she goes to visit Elizabeth, it is. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, God's been working in Elizabeth, and, and uh, it's so amazing. But it's just so uh, I just, it struck me here that here's Mary at a very desperate place, very needy, and God provides this incredible response and this opportunity to stay with Elizabeth for a while and just revel in what God is actually doing. And what about Joseph? Well, Joseph's back at, uh, you know, Nazareth, and he's sorting things out. How do I get out of, how did I get into this mess? How do I get out of this mess? You know, I know how to fix things made out of wood, if it was a table or a chair, I could fix it. But I don't know how to fix this. And then God provides an angel. Uh, Matthew one twenty records it. It says, but after he considered this, and that means divorcing Mary quietly. He was going to sort of try to end the relationship uh, legally, but not do it very publicly. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so God provides exactly what Joseph needs, direction. So he goes from, what am I to do, to clarity. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. They both needed a little love from God in their vulnerable moments, and God demonstrated it clearly that he loved them. So why love God the most? Why love God the most? You know, we look, come back to that command that was, that was shown up on the video. You know, the first command Jesus said that was most important, love, 
Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment that's linked, it's the other side of the coin, is love your neighbor as yourself. Why love God, your mo- God the most? Let me give you a couple reasons. First, God loved you first, and he loves you most. God loved you first, and he loves you mo- most. Jeremiah 31.3, this is, this is about his people, Israel, and we've been going through the, old, the story, which is sort of the Old Testament journey to the, from one end of the book to, the, to Genesis to Revelation. And I love this verse. It says, the Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. So behind all the divine acts of love, that God had shown Israel in their history, providing for them, guiding them, forgiving them. They needed a lot of forgiveness because they had a lot of, you know, rebellious times against God or or turning from God. He he tells them, this love, these acts of love that you've experienced, this love already existed in eternity before you existed. In other words, you were loved like this before you were. Let me say that to you personally. It's for me, it's for you. You were loved by God before you were. Before your mom knew she was pregnant and loved you in the womb, and the Bible says we were also loved there, God knew us in the womb, but before that, you were loved. God loved you first, before anyone else had a chance to love you. God loved you. So he loved you first, and he loves you most. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5 says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So God loves you first, and God loves you the most. Like This great love made us alive, even when we didn't deserve it. Even when we didn't deserve it. I was thinking a little bit about um, funerals. In preparing for this, you think, I love funerals? Why weren't you thinking of weddings more or something? But funerals was what got my attention because uh, my dad passed away a couple years ago. And I, I was thinking about the, experience, the different experiences. There's seven kids in our family. The oldest one is 15 years older than the youngest one. So when we sat at my dad's funeral, my oldest brother is dealing with my dad's death at the age of 50. And my youngest brother is dealing with my dad's death at the age of 35. Now, I was, I was in the middle. I was 45 at the time. So I was, like, I was like, what is that like? What is the difference of being 50 and 35 in losing a parent? Right? Some of you have lost your parents uh, quite young when you were children or teenagers. Some of you uh, lost parents in your 70s or even 80s. Those are, I think they're different things. I mean, it's always significant. But I just wondered about that processing. And that got me thinking about my own family because that 15-year gap exists in my family too. My oldest is 17, my youngest is 2. And someday that will be me in the casket. So this is, I'm, I got thinking, I got thinking. My youngest gets 15 yes, less years with me than my oldest. What's really important to pass on to all of them but especially for the ones who are processing my death at the youngest ages. I want them to know, I want them to know that they have another father. And he's a better father. He is such a good father. 
he is such a good father. I want them to know him. I want them to know the love that he has for them. I, I mean, this is so important for my two-year-old and all the way up to my 17-year-old and everyone in between. It's so important for, for my two-year-old to know that when daddy is gone and when mommy is gone and when the three huggy brothers have passed away, That the one who loves you first and the one who loves you most and the one who loves you the best and the one who wants to love you for all of eternity is still there. So I want something that will not just bless her when she's 2 or 12. I want something that will bless her when she's 82. I want it to be a strength in her life. I want it to be a real tangible thing. I want her to delight in Jesus. And that no matter how relationships change and shift and who dies and who leaves and who says they love you and then aren't faithful or true or whatever can possibly come into a life that can cause your heart to hurt. I want her to have stability at the bedrock level in Jesus. That no one can snatch her joy. That no one can steal love from her because it isn't dependent on a human vessel to carry it to her life, that she actually can receive it from Christ. So I want her to know that. So start when they're two and invest so that at 82, there's joy. There's joy. So God loves you first. God loves you most. And you love other people best. This is the other part. You love other people best when you love God most. And you say, that sounds strange. If I love God most, that, mo that means I love other people best. It, well, that's what the scripture tells us, and that's how we understand it. Let me give you 1 John 4, 9 to 11. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. Okay? Details. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That we might live through him. Okay. So this is love. Not that we love God. Okay, the love story between us and God is not that I chose to love God and so then he gave me his love. The story is that God already loved us. And at some point, we began to respond back in love. He's the initiator always in the stories of love with people. Okay? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then it says, dear friends, since God loved us like this, that's my words, but since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So how does loving God most help you love others best? It's you are able to give, the stuff you're most able to give most freely in your life is the stuff you've received freely. Right? Freely receive, freely give. So if you are loved with the, the pure love of God, which is not a love based on your performing to earn it. Uh, you might have caught on that some of your relationships function like that in some level. Even some of the good relationships sometimes work that way. Right? Some of your friendships might be based on the fact that you're clever enough, you're funny enough, you're good looking enough, you got the right clothes, you, you fit the right socioeconomic bracket, you, you, whatever. You drive a Chevy, not a Ford, whatever the, whatever the reality is, there's some sort of condition to the love. And the pure love of God changes that game for us and enables us to love well. 
because we realize that God loved the whole world and sent his son for the whole world. And so there's no one outside of his love. And so if you just said, well, I'm going to make conditions on my love. I'll love people as long as they fit these criteria. I'll love people as long as they don't cross this line. I'll love people up until they disappoint me like this. And then you realize God makes none of those conditions and that he loves you even when you cross all sorts of lines and you go, oh, now that love is pure. And if God loves me like this, if he so loves me, then I am challenged at the core of my being to love at a whole nother level that I've never even considered loving. Right? I started writing a list of all the people uh, God loves. He loves his enemies. Right? I, like, he loves people who steal money from other people. He loves people who scam other people out of their retirement. He loves people who use other people and discard them. He loves people who wreck other people's reputation. He loves people who steal other people's innocence. He loves people who commit murder. He loves the terrorist. He loves the child pornographer. He loves the serial killer. He loves the brutal dictator. He loves the pedophile. You know, when you hear that, suddenly your sense of justice perks up and you say, well, those pre they don't deserve love. What they do is evil and wrong. And the whole Bible agrees with you that that's evil and wrong. And the whole Bible agrees with you that they don't deserve God's pure love and forgiveness. And the Bible also says neither do we. Your love will be challenged. When you love God most, when you experience his love for you, his forgiveness for you, how far his grace will go in your life, you go, oh, and you want me to extend that level of love to my fellow man? Wow. You will love farther and deeper and purer if you begin to receive the love of God and imitate it in your life. If his example is the one you're following, you will forgive you will forgive some really wild, awful things. You will engage in messy situations you might never have engaged before if you didn't know that Jesus engages there. You'll never lock eyes with anybody who's not loved by God. And that will challenge you. It'll challenge you deeply. So loving other, God first is so important. But the second thing I want to say today, and I'm, this is the main thing I'm focusing on, is the, the love of God can be experienced. You can experience the love of God. In fact, I won't just say you can experience it. I think it's a reality meant to be experienced. And I'm not saying that based on what I think. I'm saying that based on what the Bible says. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read you eight verses here. Two of them are real standouts, but this is all helpful. Therefore... Since we've been justified through faith. Now, just quickly, justified means just as if I've never sinned, but I have sinned. But God's forgiveness and grace changes our status before God. That we can stand before God basically having exchanged our guilt given to Jesus on the cross for his goodness given to us. So you can stand in the presence of God clothed in goodness, righteousness, no sin. You've been justified, just as if you never sinned, and just as if you've always obeyed. 
This is crazy. It's really hard to get your head around it sometimes. But that's, God changes your status, or, or Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross changes your status before God and, it could change, and changes your relationship, your options, your, your, your opportunity to relate to God. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, faith means you just trust in it. You just trust in it. You believe it, and you, and you begin to live your life out of that truth. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Last week was all about hope. We boast in this hope. We've got this hope. This is amazing. What an amazing hope. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. So we say, so you're suffering, you're in a bad scenario, it's, it's really tough. You know what? There can even be a celebration and joy and thankfulness in that situation. In fact, we're commanded as Christians to give thanks in all circumstances. Because we know God is working out this process. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Wow, God, you've brought this suffering into my life. You want to build character in me. You want my hope uh, to be in you and not in all the circumstances going all right. And this hope does not put us to shame because, here's the linchpin, because God's love has been poured into our hearts. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So it's an act of the Holy Spirit. How do you experience God's love? It's an act of the Holy Spirit. But, don't miss the phrase, God's love has been poured into our heart. This is an experiential line. This isn't just like, God's love has been poured into our hearts. That means, hmm, it doesn't mean just, hmm, I think it is a truth that God does love me. No, it's more than that. God's love being poured into your hearts is an experience. It's an experience. Let me read a little further. It says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to give you some examples of people who had the love of God poured into their hearts. Okay, some historical examples. Okay, I'm going to start with, uh, who am I going to start with? Let me just see who I've got first in the lineup here today. John Wesley. John Wesley was a pastor. He preached on two different continents, uh, in England and back in, in the States around Georgia. And um, something happened to him. This is historical. On May 24th, 1738. Okay, so he's a famous man, long time ago. And he's, um, anyhow, John Wesley was listening to a man reading the preface to Martin Luther's work on Romans. And he was in London at the time on a street called Aldersgate. And uh, that's why there was an Aldersgate College in Moose Jaw years ago. It all ties back to the story I'm about to read you. You know that? There was an Aldersgate College. It's all about this. Okay? Here is Wesley's description of what happened to him as someone just read the preface to a book about Romans. Here, here's, the, here's what he said. He says, at, a quarter, at about a quarter before 9, 8.45, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart 
strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Now, what's amazing is that John Wesley was a pastor. He was a preacher, and he'd been preaching, such a prominent preacher. He'd been preaching on two different continents, and now he tasted the love of God. He had a new sense of how sweet it was, and his life and ministry were transformed. God's love was poured into his heart. It was experienced. Jonathan Edwards, he's the next one. Again, these are all historical guys. 1737, um, so about the same time. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, preacher in the States, and he rode out into the woods for a time of prayer. He tied up his horse, and this is what he said. I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love. So he went into the woods, tied up his horse, saw the love of Christ in a way he'd never seen it before, and its sweetness came home to his soul. He experienced the love of Christ poured into his heart. Uh, if I speed up about 100 years into the 1800s, D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, his church building was destroyed in the Chicago fire, the great Chicago fire. So he went to New York to get financial help. And this is, he, he, he tells about this experience. I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. And this hunger increased. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, Oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. It was like his soul, his soul was so overwhelmed with the love of God, he was like saying, I can't take it anymore. It's too much that I should be loved in this way. And then you say, wow, these guys are all, they sound like weepy, emotional dudes. <laughs> Let me give you a scientist, Blaise Pascal. Now, you could easily dismiss people feeling uh, a sense of God's love by saying that they're the emotional types. But Blaise Pascal was a mathematician, an inventor, and a scientist. In fact, he did most of his, uh, all the things that he did, which were very significant in that whole world, before he was like even 30. He was a brilliant genius, and he definitely was, uh, you know, a very logical, rational thinker. But he had an extraordinary experience of the love of God that lasted for about two hours. And he wrote some scribbled notes of what happened to him, and then he sewed them in the inside of the pocket of his coat. And then it wasn't until after he died that people found his coat and, un and, and said, what is this? And they opened it and they found his account. And I'm going to read you just a bit of his account. It says, this day of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 till half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, Security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never, may I never be separated from me. He just writes this terse, crazy, just like describing his experience, two hours of intensity of the love of God. And I say, wow, these historical figures, they all experienced the love of God. Does that still happen today? Oh, man, does it happen today? Uh, a good friend of mine, 
No, I'll tell you my story first, then I'll tell you my good friend's story. My story was this. I'm at my brother's wedding. It's six months, roughly, after my dad has passed away. The day after my dad passed away, by the way, you need, you know, my dad was praying consistently for my youngest brother to find a wife. And my youngest brother is uh, one of the most, in our family, he's the most intense and passionate of all seven of us. And so we all thought, like, who is he going to find to marry? Because she's got to be intense and passionate, right? Like, I don't know. We, but anyhow, my dad prayed consistently for him to find a wife. Anyhow, his funeral was, was uh, you know, this day. And then my, my youngest brother, he announced, he said, well, uh, we've been together for family all the way up to this funeral. But I've, I've, I've booked a flight to uh, Montreal to go to a prayer conference there. And so I'm going to just keep that appointment and I'm going to go. So it's like he left the day after the funeral and went to Montreal. And when he got there, he met his wife. That day, that day after the funeral. And my dad had been praying for this for years. And he met her. And then six, and it was, a, it was just a rapid courtship. And we, we were like, who, who are you marrying? Who's this girl? And we met her and we're like, wow, she's intense and passionate and perfect for Phil. It was amazing. Like everyone just had to say, wow, that's an amazing match. Only God could do that. And then at the wedding, I remember we were at the wedding, and part of the wedding, it had a wor- there was a worship time in the wedding. And uh, everybody's just worshiping God, and I had an experience of the love of God. This is what it was like. I, I, it's sort of like when I was reading Elizabeth's word. She says, like when Mary comes, and she's, who am I that I'm so highly favored? That's what I felt like. Uh, for me, it was just like this. I'm, I'm worshiping God, and, I, and it just, I start thinking about my dad, and I'm thinking, Dad, you just, like, God just found Dad working at, he was working at his job, he was in the stock room, and he impressed another guy to sh- share with his faith with him. I won't tell you the whole story. But, my, but God found my dad in his 20s, in his, you know, come, you know, in a department store where he worked in Vancouver. Here I am at my brother's wedding, and I just start going, who, who was my dad that you blessed him? Who is our family that you blessed us? Who am I that you've given me the wife that I have and the children that I have and the family that I have? Oh, God, you've just poured blessing through the generations of our family. We're so blessed. Who are we that you did this? I mean, who am I that you forgave my sinful rebellion against you? All of this is because of Jesus. All of this is because the Father who loved me, sending Jesus, loved us to die on the cross. All of this, all of this. Who am I? Who am I? It, just, it began to overwhelm me as I was just worshiping in this, this wedding atmosphere. Right? I just felt like God was just revealing how good he'd been and how good he continues to be in our lives. So my friend, Jonathan Fisher, I'll mention his name. He, I, wrote, I read his blog this week. Does God still impact people with the love of God today? Yes, he does. This week, I'm reading his, his blog, and he says, uh, um, he said, he's telling the story about he and his wife went to the States uh, for a year of discipleship training with a certain ministry. And it was transformational. Really changed their lives. Really changed their relationship with God. Just so many things changed. And they came back, and people and they say, wow, we were just transformed by that year. And people say, well, what, what, what did you learn over the course of a year? What did, and it, that became a challenge. He was like, well, uh, like, I learned this, I learned that. And they're like, well, what's the big takeaway? 
And, he, and he, so he thought about it for a bit, and he came down to three things. Let's see if I can quote them really quickly. He just said, I learned that God is really good. And I learned that God is really my father. And I learned that God really loves me. Let me just ask you, do you know, do you know those things? Do you know that God is really good? Do you know that God desires to be your father? And I, you know, the, the Bible says you can be a child of God. It's not, this is not an automatic. His love is automatic, but becoming his child is a choice, right? Let me just, you know, the, I'll just quote it. In the book of John, it just says, As many as received him and believed in his name, to them, he gave the power to become children of God. Have you become a child of God? Do you know that he's your father? I mean, if your love is beaming at you full force, but you've never opened up to receive it, it's not going to bring great benefit in your life. Do you know that he's good? Do you know that he's a fa your father? And do you really know that he loves you? So I'm speaking to some people. You, maybe you haven't crossed that line of faith. Maybe you haven't come to trust in his love for you. Maybe, and, and today's your day. Maybe. Where you're just going to be like a flower that's closed up and the petals suddenly open and receive the blazing glory of God's love in your life. Or you might be a Christian here, and it's all here, it's all here, but you're, right now you're feeling a wake-up call inside of you. You're going, I don't know if I, I can't, I, I don't know about experiencing the love of God. Like, I know the love of God. I can write it on a test that God loves me, he's really my father, and he's really good. But I don't know if that's been experientially my experience. You want to know what to do? I'll give you, the Apostle Paul taught it this way. I'm out of time for going to more of my notes, so I'll just go right to the quick here. Two things you can do. Focus on what God did for you in Jesus. Focus on what God did for you in Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is meant to be a delight. Not that he died, there's sorrow in that, but that he died for us. That love of God experienced through Jesus, that is meant to be a delight and a fuel and life to you. It's meant to bring you great joy. Do you find it beautiful? Do you find it compelling? Has it grabbed a hold of your heart? God wants to pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. You can't just drum it up. But it's got to be, a, it's not just basically some generic love. It's got very specific realities to it. The demonstration of his love was Jesus' death on the cross. The arrival of Jesus, the advent of Jesus, his, his, his sacrificial death on your behalf. Those are some of the most important details about God's love for you. So as you look at that, the old hymn writer would say, as you survey the wondrous cross, as you look and look and look and look and look, has it become attractive? Has it become beautiful in your life? Has it become powerful and has it moved you here?
And the second thing that the Apostle Paul would probably tell you to do is pray for an experience of the love of God in your life. What would Paul do? He would write letters to churches, and he'd say, this is what God did through Jesus. This is what God did through Jesus. And I pray that you would know the depths and widths and height of the love of God. I pray that you would be rooted and grounded in love. And I pray, I pray. And so he was doing two things. He was telling them, this is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for you. He wrote that to everybody. And then he said, and now I'm praying that a work of the Holy Spirit would happen. Even for those of you who believe. I'm praying that his love would just be poured into your heart. That as you reflect on the realities of what Christ has done for you, that you would experience his love. And so Paul wrote about Jesus and then prayed for the people he was writing to and told them he was praying for them specifically to experience the love of God. So how are we going to end? I'm going to get you to stand with me. I'm trying to awaken with feeble words something that's supernatural. I mean, all I've got is the foolishness of preaching here this morning. But I believe that so many of you, God wants to, you to experience his love. And, and for some reason, there hasn't been a hunger for it. And maybe right now there is. Maybe. I pray that there is. You haven't felt that you haven't been nudged or prompted or, or felt like you should ask for that, and, and maybe now you're ready. Maybe you're saying, Yeah, I'm I I I'm ready to ask for that. Or I didn't even know what was missing. Or I've been sort of coping with my life. I've been I've been getting through my life, but I get through it by gritting my teeth. I don't get through it with the power of the love of God in my life at work, poured into my heart. I'm not living that. Why am I so favored life? Because some of the truths of what Christ has done for me are still hidden from me. They're not so active in me. They're not so powerful in me. And so maybe now you're, you're ready. Maybe now you're ready. You say, God's, I want that. I desire that. And that's really all you can do is just pray like Paul prayed for people. And you know what? When Paul prayed for people, he was telling them his prayer so they could pray it. So they could pray it. So I pray for you, that you'd experience the love of God. And now, I'm inviting you to pray for you. That he pour it into your heart. So let's, let's do it together. Let's do it together. Yeah. You put it in your own words. I'm going to pray for you, but you just put it in your own words, in your own heart. Cry out to God for what only he can provide. Lord, I ask. I ask that your love would not be just an intellectual argument. It wouldn't just be something that we sort of give some sort of verbal assent to, that we say, yeah, that's true. But I pray that it would be experienced. Lord, we can't conjure up you up like a genie. We don't pretend to have that 
We don't, that's not reality. The reality is you're sovereign. You can choose the timing for all of us. When you found D.L. Moody and John Wesley and all those different leaders, you, you caught a lot of those guys by surprise. But Lord, we want to ask. We don't want to be faithless. We don't want to be, we don't want to hold back. We don't want those people who don't believe. We know that faith pleases you. And so we want to step out in faith and ask today. And Lord, I ask that you pour the love of God, your love, by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Lord, just as, as much as, uh, as uh, there's love in the Trinity, how God the Father loved the Son, we want to know a taste of that love that exists in, 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 in God. And we read on the page that you so love the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. And so we know some of the details of your love, but Lord, we want it to become activated. We want it to become powerful. We want it to become transformative. We want it to become fuel in our lives. We want it to become joy. We want it to become uh, 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 self-forgetfulness and God-focusedness. We want it to become other-servingness. Lord, we want all those things active in our lives because we've tasted the love of God. So God, would you give us an experience of you? Would you give us a, we're going to ask this, we're going to believe this, and then Lord Jesus, give us opportunities to not only reflect on what you've done for us through Christ, but then... Would you make it come alive? We just ask for you to, to set it ablaze.